So church, you can open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. That'll be the Old Testament reading. And the sermon text will come from Philippians chapter 2. So Proverbs 11. So Proverbs 11 says this, The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless make their path straight, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. Hope placed in mortal die with them. All the promises of their power come to nothing. The righteous person is rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. With their mouths, the godless destroy their neighbors, but their, through knowledge, the righteous escape. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, but when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Verse 12, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to shake hands in a pledge is safe. A kind-hearted woman gains honor, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Those who are kind benefit themselves but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Truly the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. The Lord detests those who, whose hearts are perverse, but he delights in those who are, bl are blameless. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Like a gold ring in a, a pig's snout a is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. The desire of a righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on those on the one who is willing to sell. Whoever seeks good finds favor, but evil comes to one who searches for it. Verse 28, those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Whoever brings ruin on their family will inherit only wind, and the fool will be a servant to the wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. If the righteous receives their due on earth, how much more the ungodly, the sinner. So here now our sermon text from Philippians chapter 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy, Paul says, by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God had exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the, to the glory of, the, of God the Father. So church, as you recall, over the last couple years, we've been working through, I've been working through the book of Philippians and preaching upon that. And so here we examine Philippians chapter 2. And I think it's important, even though we're looking at chapter 2, to give a context upon which Paul is writing this letter. I did this on my first sermon a couple years ago with, and I think it, it warrants to, to provide you the context again as we approach this. So as we consider Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, it is important to have an understanding and context upon which Paul penned this letter. It is most likely that Paul had written this letter while in prison, probably in Rome around the year 60 A.D., what is recorded in Acts 28 is most likely account and circumstances in which Paul is writing this letter. This is what Paul wrote in part of Acts 28. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and had handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving of death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on the epistles to the Philippians, provides a nice overview on the purposes of Paul's letter and develops four themes. First, we find Paul sending back Epaphroditus, an ambassador from the church of Philippi, and this provides an opportunity to send this letter to the Philippians. Paul expresses his gratitude to his friends for their generosity. As evidence in the recent gift Epaphroditus had brought, Paul takes special attention that this gift is another example of the generous spirit that has characterized their lives from the beginning of their commitment to the gospel and is further evidence of their common cause with him in his affliction. At the same time, Paul explains why he took the decision to send back Epaphroditus so promptly. Epaphroditus had fallen ill and nearly died in fulfillment of his ministry to Paul. Paul believed that the congregation would rejoice when they saw Epaphroditus, and Paul's own sorrow would be lessened knowing that he was home and in good health. Their messenger was another godly example for them. He had risked his life for the sake of the work of Christ. Second, Paul's Christian friends at Philippi had been deeply concerned about his welfare, knowing that he was in prison awaiting trial. 
Contrary to what they might have expected, his imprisonment and the events surrounding it had served to advance the gospel to both within the Christian community of the capital and outside it. Not all of those had been emboldened to proclaim the gospel uh, did so from the highest of motives. Nonetheless, the significant thing for Paul was that Christ was being preached, and in this he rejoiced even while being imprisoned. Regarding the future, Paul is not sure whether he'll be acquitted by Caesar's tribunal and discharged from the prison or not. He's able to rejoice in his own salvation, for he knows that he was acquitted by God at the heavenly tribunal. His pastoral concern for his readers shines through as he considers their needs, although he longs to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To remain here on earth and minister to them and other believers is more necessary. Paul's future relationship with the Philippians are important. Because of his imprisonment, he cannot visit them at the present. However, he expects to send Timothy to them soon, not immediately, but when he has clear view of his own affairs. He also hopes to visit them before long and plans accordingly. They will be glad to have news of him. He is anxious to learn how they are faring and will be encouraged when he hears about them. 3. Regarding Paul's opponents and the false teachers at Philippi, it is clear that one of the apostles' major purpose in writing this letter was to warn his dear friends of the dangers posed by Jewish Christian missionaries from outside the congregation who, by their Judaizing propaganda, sought to pervert the gospel of grace and to win them over. Their teaching was harmful, their example ungodly, and their final destruction, eternal ruin, and separation from the presence of the Lord. The apostles' words in chapter 3 regarding these opponents are some of the strongest found in any of his letters. Fourth, closely related to the apostles' concern that his readers be made aware of the dangers from opponents of the gospel in, is the twofold sum to stand fast and be united. Paul's relations with the church at Philippi were warm and affectionate. Here was a congregation that had supported him in the cause of the gospel from the beginning. He was able to look back in gratitude and know that God had begun his work in the lives of these converts. Many, regards, uh, many, um, many readers of Paul's letter have concluded that this church was a model congregation with few problems. And the strong emphasis in this letter on the theme of rejoicing serves to, confu- uh, to, serves to confirm this impression. But all of its strengths, the church had internal rivalries and disputes. Paul calls them to live together as citizens worthy of the gospel. And this involves an exhortation to stand fast, persevere, and to be united. Paul's letter places great weight on the need to stand fast and persevere. The readers had been facing adversity and were tempted to abandon their struggles. Perhaps, too, they had lost their sense of joy. They are to stand firm in one spirit contending together for their faith of the gospel in the context of opposition from enemies who seek to intimidate them. They're engaged in some conflict for the gospel as Paul, as this involves suffering on behalf of Christ. Elsewhere, they are exhorted to hold fast the word of life in the midst of crooked and perverse world. This is part of their serious responsibility of working out their own salvation with godly fear. In regards to internal rivalries, that those that are troubled by internal rivalries, they are to stand firm in one spirit for the cause of the gospel, withstanding the common enemy. 
the emphasis on unity is even more pronounced in the beginning of chapter 2, where on the basis of supernatural objective realities that occurred in their lives, they are urged to be in one aim and to be one in aim and disposition, have the same love, and be united in spirit against their natural tendencies to to self-assertiveness. They are called upon to put the interests of others before their own, and to be marked by a spirit of selflessness and humility. Paul then appeals to the lordly example of Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing, but was exalted to the highest place by the Father. Christ is the pattern to which the Philippians are to conform. The epistle, while possessing the characteristics of a personal letter, have been carefully constructed. It may be well have been organized and written according to the principles, principles of Greco-Roman rhetoric. The apostle, the apostle appears to have had a number of purposes in mind as he wrote it, namely to express his gratitude to the Philippian friends for their generosity, to explain why he decided to send Epaphroditus back so quickly, to inform his readers of his present circumstances, and how this imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, to indicate his possible future plans, including the visit of Timothy and his hope of visiting himself to warn the Philippians of the dangers posed by the Judaizing opponents from outside the congregation and especially to urge his Christian friends to stand firm for the gospel and to be united in Christian love. Here's a summary or a big picture of the view of, of how the, the letter to the Philippians is structured. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1-9, through 9, Paul introduces the letter with a typical salutation, embraces the church with thanksgiving and a joyful intercession. In chapter 1, 9-11, through 11, Paul instructs the church on the importance and priority of the gospel of Christ in his life and mission. Chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, 18, which we're looking today, it says uh, the, the letter instructs the Philippians... Um, on the conduct that is worthy of the gospel and provides exhortation and godly examples of the community to follow. Paul, uh, Paul follows up in chapter 2, 19 through 30, with news about Timothy and Paphroditus and how they are two Christ like examples worthy to follow. In chapter 3, a warning is given against Judaizers and against exhortation to, is given to follow Paul's example and teaching. Paul concludes the letter in chapter 4 to the Philippians with a final exhortation, thanksgiving for the gifts from the Philippians, and final greetings. With that in your mind, with that backdrop, that context, I'd like for us to reread chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. So draw your attention there, please. Chapter 2, it says, If there are any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy, right? Paul's in prison. Complete his joy while he is in prison by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in Christ, is, is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count 
equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul turns his attention to the unity and the harmony of the church. If you look around our world and the many institutions that it's made up of, our culture and our society, I believe you see people desiring peace and unity and harmony. The world does not and will never achieve this type of peace, unity, and harmony they desire because of their depraved hearts and minds, their pride and goal of self-gratification. Church, this isn't and must not be the same for the people of God, for God's church. In Philippians 2, Paul is providing wise counsel to the church on how to strive for peace, unity, harmony that is honoring to God. Calvin has this to say about the introduction to Philippians chapter 2. There is an extraordinary tenderness in this exhortation in which he entreats by all means the Philippians' mutual cherished harmony amongst themselves, lest in their event of their being torn by contentions, they should expose themselves to the imposterous of false apostles. For when there is disagreement, there is invariably a door open for Satan to disseminate impious doctrines, while agreement is the best bulwark for repelling them. Because of our fallen condition, we are prone to disunity, division in all our relationships, in our relationship with Father, our Father in Heaven and our fellow man. Our fallen condition pulls us apart while the work of Christ brings unity in our relationships not only with our Father in Heaven, but with fellow believers. Because unity is not natural to our fallen condition, we are called to work towards and take great encouragement in the unity we find in Christ. Paul in verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from this love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Our fallen condition does not produce any type of unity in Christ. In our fallen condition, we do not experience His perfect love. Our fallen condition does not produce any kind of authentic, long-lasting sharing, tenderness, or compassion. The only way that we are able to experience unity in a God-honoring way as a church is to be of one mind and to have a common perspective on life. Calvin has this to say of the church in regards to this passage. The sum is this, that they be joined together in views and inclinations. For he makes mention of agreement in doctrine and mutual love. And afterwards, repeating the same thing, he exhorts them to be of one mind and to have the same views. This expression implies that they must accommodate themselves to each other. Hence, the beginning of love is harmony of views. But that is not sufficient 
unless men's hearts are at the same time joined together in mutual affection. Paul's troubling life circumstances at the time of writing this shows his perspective when he states that like being that being like-minded and having the same love makes his joy complete. This indicates the significance of this truth for the sustainability of the local church. Calvin has this to say, Here again we may see how little anxiety Paul had as to himself, provided only it went well with the church of Christ. He was kept shut up in prison and bound with chains. He was reckoned worthy of capital punishment, Before his view were tortures, near at hand was the executioner, yet all things do not prevent him experiencing unmingled joy, provided he sees that the church are in a good condition. Now what he reckons the chief indication of a prosperous condition of the church is when mutual agreement prevails in it, and brotherly harmony. The local church is in danger when it is deficient in being like-minded and when love lacks towards one another. I think also the local church is in danger when they may be like-minded but have no love for one another. I also think the local church is in danger when they are divided in mind but yet try to express love for one another. Church, we must work hard to be like-minded and through thought, We actively love and care for one another. We must have both. In many ways, what what I see Paul exhorting the church to keep is the two greatest commandments. Jesus in Matthew 22 was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul exhorts, Paul's exhortation to be like-minded is not in itself the sum of the greatest commandment, but we must recognize the keeping of the greatest commandment to love God and thought, word, and deed cannot be done without the renewal and the transformation of the mind. What we believe, what we know, what we train our minds on has a tremendous impact on our love for God and our love for one another. Of course, knowledge is futile if it's filled with pride. Correct and biblical and proper biblical knowledge is debased if it's not accompanied with love. Correct and proper biblical knowledge has no benefit to our soul if it lacks the saving faith found in Christ. And of course, our sin nature is still at war within, within us, Having correct biblical knowledge does not always result in doing what is right before God. We all can relate with Paul when he says in Romans chapter 7, I know that nothing good lives in me, that this in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good what I want to do, instead I keep on doing the evil I do not want to do. And if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The greatest commandment requires the mind in loving God. Paul in our scripture text has exhorted you and I to be like-minded for the sake and the unity, for the sake of the unity and advancement of the church. Scripture speaks about the mind often and how the mind can be troubled 
how it can be renewed, and how it can be trained. Here now a series of, of, of verses that speak of the mind. In Acts 15 it says this, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. Romans 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 3, set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. Paul in his letter to the Philippians has a theme peppered throughout the letter addressing the mind. In Philippians 1, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to you and see or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We just saw in Romans 2, or uh, Philippians 2, complete by my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being filled, accord, and of one mind. Philippians 2, 5, having this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Romans 4, or I keep saying Romans, Philippians 4, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So church, to be, to be a church that is unified peaceful, seeking harmony and honoring God, we must strive for like-mindedness. We are to train our minds on the things of God. We are to train our minds on the things of above and not here on earth. The, what we do with our mind has an impact on our unity within this congregation and our love for one another. So first and foremost, there is no like-mindedness without proper understanding and acceptance of the gospel. Nothing unites one another more than understanding the depravity of our sin, the need for a Savior, and understanding that our salvation is granted 100% by, the faith, by our faith in Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God and for His perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross for our sins. There is no like-mindedness found in this church or any other true church without the proper understanding of the gospel. While the gospel is essential for a common mind between true Christians, I don't think it's the sum of which Paul is referring to in this passage. I believe there are many churches that have the proper understanding of the gospel message, but have a variety of minds in many different areas that open the door for great divisions, quarrels, and false teachers. Having a proper mind, a proper and common doctrine allows for brothers and sisters in Christ to work towards unity and have a common mind. As I think of a common mind, I can't help but think of the value that creeds, catechisms, and confessions of faith have a play in helping brothers and sisters, the local church, 
and the global church strive for a common mind. Think of creeds. Creeds are summaries of beliefs. The first few hundred years after the death of Christ, the church faced the problem of different views over such subjects such as whether he was truly God and also whether he had a human or divine nature. Out of these disputes, the church formulated statements of beliefs, which to this day form an important part of how Christians express their faith. Creeds serve to form a, a like mind among believers. It provides a summary that believers can point to and say, I believe this, or in a lot of ways, I do not believe this, or I do not believe that. Creeds are a valuable thing to the church, and they have been for centuries. They help to form a common and like mind among believers. So we are very familiar with catechisms, right? Catechisms, like creeds, are a summary of the principles of beliefs, but unlike a creed, they're presented in a form of question and answers. Take a moment and think of the potential and the actual unity that are the Baptist catechism that we use does to bring together our children, our parents, and most importantly, our church. Our catechism summarizes the main articles of the Christian faith. The more and more we give attention to it and train our minds on them, the more and more we grow in like-mindedness, the more we grow in unity, the more we guard the church against false teachers. If we're putting our minds onto common doctrines, onto common concepts, and we train and we wrestle and we discuss those ideals, those doctrines, it brings us together as a church. And it helps us to identify what is true and what is false. There is great unity in our catechism. Furthermore, think of confessions of faith. Our confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, right? In the introduction of the, the 1689 Confession of Faith, modern English edition says this. A confession is a tried and true teaching tool. It lays out the faith in a clear, systematic way and shows the connections among doctrines. It also serves as a standard by which teaching in the church can be measured. An overseer, elder, pastor must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So hearing an officer merely quote the Bible does not tell us whether he understands the overall teaching of Scripture on his subject. A confession gives us a tool for evaluating his understanding in teaching in summary form. So think of the power of a confession, the power of a confession, what it has to unite a congregation within us, a local congregation. Think broader, the ability of a confession, how it's able to unite local churches within a region, globally, right, within a country. Think of what it does for us with our own association, the Southern California Association of Foreign Baptist Churches, when we have the quarterly gatherings, when we come together, and we understand if we're all coming together, we have this like-mindedness in the confession of faith, of how much unity that just brings as we gather and agree upon these, these essential doctrines. A confession of faith categorizes biblical doctrines, expounds upon them, and teaches their truth. Listen to the doctrines that our own confession teach and what type of impact this confession has on our ability to be like-minded. 
So I'm going to list out the doctrines our confession addresses and see the exhaustiveness that it, that it brings together. Chapter 1 is the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 2 is God and the Holy Trinity. Chapter 3 is God's decree. 4, it's creation. 5, it's divine providence. 6, the fall of mankind and sin and its punishment. 7, God's covenant. 8, Christ the mediator. 9, free will. 10, effectual calling. 11, justification. 12, adoption. 13, sanctification. 14, saving faith. 15, repentance to life and salvation. 16, good works. 17, the perseverance of the saints. 18, assurance of grace and salvation. 19, the law of God. 20, the gospel and the extent of its grace. 21, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. 22, religious worship and Sabbath day. 23, lawful oaths and vows. 24, the civil government. 25, marriage. 26, the church. 27, the communion of saints. 28, baptism and the Lord's Supper. 29, baptism. 30, the Lord's Supper. And then uh, 31, the state of humanity after death and the resurrection. And chapter 32, the last judgment. The reason why I went through that list it gives you an idea. It gives us an idea of our confession covers the essential do- doctrines of the Christian faith in great detail. And if we are able to strive for unity and to study and to discuss these topics, we know what we believe as a church and the unity is strong within us. So while creeds and catechisms and confessions of faith do not in themselves result in like-mindedness among believers, they are a catalyst they are a tool. They are effective in doing just that. The only way that these resources can be effective in developing like-mindedness, if in conjunction with Scripture, we are reading them, studying them, talking about them. The creeds, catechism, and confessions of faith are there to help us establish and, uh, and identify what we believe, and just as important, what we do not believe. A major component of the unity and like-mindedness that we experience here at Emmaus is because of our confession of faith. The officers of the church, elders and deacons, fully subscribe to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. This creates a strong unity and like-mindedness among the officers. There is no mystery on the doctrines that will be taught, and it provides a solid ground for the congregation as a whole to work towards in the renewing of their mind. Now think of your experiences, your previous church experience, other church experiences, you look around. When you go to a church that does not have a confession of faith, you are unsure of what their doctrine is. There's lack of unity because you are unsure of what factions might be within the church or the variety of, of eldership beliefs and things like that. But a confession of faith brings confidence. It brings unity. It brings a point of discussion. We might not all be at the same spot in the beliefs and understanding what they are, but it provides a spot, a foundation, a rock that we can then work from and, and discuss through. A secondary component that helps to build like-mindedness at Emmaus is our membership process. Most in this room are members or prospective members, but it's a good reminder on the requirements for membership. What does it require to be a member at Emmaus? 
First, you must trust in Christ alone for their salvation, living in a way that agrees with biblical faith. Two, one must have been baptized upon profession of faith. As I mentioned before, that is the foundation for unity. It's our proper understanding of the gospel. And to be a member at this church, we're verifying their profession of faith, understanding the gospel, being baptized. That in itself creates great unity. Three, for membership here, is to be aware of and in general agreement with the beliefs of the elders and deacons of our church as described in the core documents or the London Baptist Confession of Faith and being willing to humbly submit to their loving care. So the membership process at Emmaus helps to foster like-mindedness because to be a member of one, uh, to be a member, one first has to demonstrate and confess proper knowledge and understanding of the gospel, and two, is committed to developing a mindset that is consistent with the officers of the church and other church members. Like-mindedness has no chance when there is doubt or confusion on what each elder or factions of officers believe and various beliefs of the congregation. So an area of application in this point, for us at Emmaus, in order for us to grow in like-mindedness, I exhort us to make it a priority to read and understand the doctrines found in our confession of faith. While we may be at various degrees of knowledge and beliefs in these doctrines, the practice of better understanding these truths will only help us grow in our like-mindedness. Like-mindedness does not require that 100% of us all have the same belief at the same level with it. But if we're working towards these, if we understand what is the, the teachings of the church, what do we believe, what is our foundation with it, and if we're working towards that, if we know the, the goal that we have there, that creates great unity. And if we're willing to humbly submit to one another and to learn and to develop, it creates great like-mindedness and unity that Paul is exhorting us to do. In addition to our knowledge, like-mindedness is also concerned with our pers- uh, perspective on life. Our perspective on life flows from and out of our knowledge, but it is very possible to have, a, have much biblical knowledge, but fail to have proper perspective. Our perspective on life and our like-mindedness is rooted on how you and I answer the first question found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the, the chief end of man? What is the purpose? What is the reason for mankind? How, do we truly, how we truly answer this question greatly impacts the way one goes about living their life. If the people of God agree upon and answer this question in the same way, it has a tremendous impact on being of one mind. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is the chief end of man by stating, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If our perspective on life is to do all things to the glory of God, then it forces us to live life a certain way that we all have in common. It causes us to have a like-mindedness that puts a priority over all things to bring God the glory in all that we do. No matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, if our perspective is to glorify God in our thoughts, words, and deeds, then it creates a unity that is like-minded in its purpose and vision for life, for the individual and for the church as a whole. If we individually and as a church desire to glorify God in all we do, then it further supports our need to understand the scriptures, utilizing the catechism and the confessions to be assured that we order our lives and do church in a way that is glorifying to God. Draw your attention back to verse 2. It says in verse 2, Paul states, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. 
Paul also commands us to have the same love. When brothers and sisters in Christ have the same mind, mutual love for one another is given an opportunity to arise and flourish. The love for one another that Paul is describing is the type of love that Jesus described when he commanded us to love your neighbor as yourself. We are to know one another. We are to be involved in one another's lives. We are to know the needs of our brothers and sisters and be diligent in helping to meet them. Scripture speaks a lot on how we're to show our love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are often referred to as the one anothering. Here's a sampling of, of the one another's that Scripture speak of. Be patient with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Gently, patient, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Bear with, what, bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another, and don't repay evil for evil. Confess sins to one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Give preference to one another in honor. Serve one another in honor. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And clothe yourself in humility toward one another. There are a number of other scriptures that describe how we're to treat one another and show love one, to one another. And the unity that Paul is exhorting the church to have not only requires a like-mindedness in our knowledge and understanding of scriptures and the important doctrines that contain, but also requires us to give attention on how we are to treat one another, how we are to interact with another, and how we are to care for one another. We are to love one another with our uh, actions and consider one another before ourselves. Look at verse 3 through 11 in Philippians 2. It says, Paul provides us with a perfect example of the type of like-mindedness, the type of perspective we are to have, and what our love for one another, one another will look like. In verse 3, Paul states, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus. Here we see that Paul is giving a concrete example on how to build the unity within the church. How to avoid quarrels, troubles, and divisions by doing nothing out of selfish ambition for, or for one's personal gain. Within the church, we should not be relating to one another with the focus on what you will get out of the relationship or worried on how you will benefit from it. The like-mindedness we should have, the perspective we need to frame our minds around, is how can I care and serve others? Paul contrasts doing nothing out of selfish ambition or personal gain by commanding us to be humble and value others above yourself. Not focused and consumed with your own interests, but have other interests, others' interests as a priority. A church cannot be like-minded Unified, protected from Satan and his works when individuals are consumed and focus on their own agenda and benefits. We are called to put others before ourselves, and in doing so, we will, we will be taken care of. Paul uses Christ as the perfect example. We call ourselves Christians. We are called to follow after Christ's example. 
And starting in verse 5, Paul commands us to have the mindset and perspective of Christ. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Jesus, who being in very, in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the same that that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul has commanded the people of God to be humble to humble themselves before their brothers and sisters in Christ. What did Christ do? The true and living God humbled himself to the greatest degree. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, took on the appearance as a man, took upon the sins of his people through his obedience to death on a cross. Paul has commanded the people of God to not have selfish ambition, but to put others before themselves. Christ did not have selfish ambition. Christ put his people before himself, being obedient to the law of God, and for us in having no sin, took upon himself all the sins of his people. Church, how did it turn out for Christ? How did Christ's humiliation and suffering on the cross for our sins turn out for him? How did it turn out for Christ by humbling himself and putting others' interests above his? Paul, in verse 9, proclaimed that it turned out perfectly for Christ. He states, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that every name of Jesus, or that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory the Father, or glory of God the Father. Paul is making the point that if we focus on humbling ourselves, putting the needs and interests of others before ourselves, God will take care of us not only in this life, but more importantly in a life to come. There is no need to rush to the church snack table of life, pushing, fighting, hoarding, destroying one another in the process. Because, there's, because there will be enough for all. There's great unity within the church of God when people are content in their heart, approach all interactions and endeavors with no personal gain and ambition in mind, but rather focused on how they can care and provide for one another, and in doing, show, in doing so, showing love for one another. Church, the area of application is rather simple and straightforward. For the glory of God... The sake of the unity of the church, we are to strive to be of one mind. We can continue to develop a like-mindedness as we are faithful to keep the Sabbath, hearing the word of God preached each week, reading scripture, and utilizing our catechism and confession of faith to train and to renew our minds. Second, the glory of God, for the glory of God and the unity of the church, I exhort you to love one another, be humble. And patient in your interactions with one another. Seek to understand the needs of one another and be willing to do what you can to take care of one another. Let's go before our Lord and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We ask that you would use the words preached today, your scriptures, that you would transform our minds, that you would transform our hearts. Lord, help us to develop a love for your doctrine, for your truth, for your law. Help us to develop a unity that strives for the peace of the church. Lord, help us to just glorify you and set our minds upon you in all things. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to have love for one another, that you help us to be humble and to not worry about our own affairs, but put others before ours. Lord, we thank you for doing that very thing for our sake, for dying for us, for giving us, forgiving us of our sins, and for accepting us uh, unto you. Lord, we love you and praise in Jesus' name.